boop, 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 boop. I can see the um, sound waves. They look wavy. All right. Um, all right, all right. <laughs> Here we are. Welcome to How I Hear It, a podcast where we explore the intersection of music and culture and just as nerds who are fascinated with both of those things, talk a lot about it at each other. My yeah, name we're just Jordan. like the nerds. We're just like the nerds next door. Sorry, Jordan. The nerds <laughs> next door. Are we? I think you're introducing yourself before I cut you off. <laughs> this is Max. Hi, I'm Max. Co-manager. Co-producer. <laughs> um, this is the first episode we've recorded in a long time now. Yeah, we're super rusty. Uh, we took a uh, long hiatus when more important things started to happen in the world. Uh, it turns out there are much more important things than this podcast. If you are confused by that statement then you should put your phone down immediately uh, or whatever you're listening to this on and go figure out why you're confused about that. Um, I would call it, I would call it more of a sabbatical than anything else. That's true. Because I was um, sort of, I cloistered myself in my home and just played video games for the majority of that time. So it's kind of like studying. That's certainly true. But I think also both of us have, been struggling to figure out what our new financial system is in this world that's changed because of a pandemic and because being bartenders isn't the same as it used to be you know i'm not a bartender anymore you are is that what a sabbatical is (laughs) but also we both did some volunteering uh i was doing a lot of stuff with mutual aid groups and still am um and protests and all sorts of things you know um which is another important part of what we both look to accomplish as people. But this is a different aspect of that where we talk about music. And another part of doing this again is that we've sort of reframed the kind of conversations we want to have in a way uh, to be a little more politically minded and uh, have more of a cultural criticism type of angle because we feel it's important to dissect those things and the way that the media gives attention to certain things the way that different musicians or uh, influencers in that realm are able to use their celebrity capital to uh, gain political power sway political power in some way uh, and this is something that's been happening for hundreds of years but is also something we've been interested in for a long time and something we were always talking about sort of reframing the way that we do this um so it's cool to be on the other side of that, you know, and uh, have had conversations about what we want to try to accomplish now. And so you're in season two. Season two. And right. uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just want to add to that real quick to say that I feel like we have liked thinking that way about music f- for a long time. But I think it's, it's not just I feel like I mean. I'll speak for myself. I, for me, it's not just that um, I see bad things happening in the world or whatever. And I'm like, oh man, we really got to, now we really have to take this seriously. And you know what I mean? Like, but 
there's a sense in which I think everything is just more politicized now. Right. Or, or, or more people are just more aware of that or feel like it is. So I think it's it's like it's just a more conducive environment to having these kinds of conversations because or, or, or like it's also more important to intervene in them because I think more people consider themselves sort of like, you know, um, connoisseurs of culture in a variety of ways, which I think is fine. Like everyone should consider them. Everyone probably is an expert in something. Um, but not like, you know, I, I feel like the average Netflix show viewer doesn't necessarily have to like have a grand theory of like every show they watch. Right. Like, like not sure. every movie you watch has to totally reflect your politics, but we're in a moment where it kind of feels that way sometimes. Yeah. And not that that is a different way of thinking than either of us have had in the past or that we've just very suddenly become interested in politics, but that uh, in thinking about this show before it was more of like, here's a fun thing. Well, we, where we, we can nerd out about different music stuff together. Um, and not that we like shied away from this sort of angle before, but that this is more of a, an intentional s- step, uh, an approach that we're taking and like trying to attempt to do something a little more, I guess the tone would be a little more uh, serious. Although I don't think that necessarily it has to be that way. More like just here's the stuff that we're interested in right now because of the current political moment. So bear with us. The production will not improve. <laughs> Jokes will not improve. Um, I will continue to stumble over my words and ramble, as will Max. Yeah. Because of the contracts we've signed with one another. With Warner Brothers. However, <laughs> we do expect to be applauded for this. That's um, right. And to be lavish just, and gain commercial success. I just want to put it out there right now to any mayors of any American city. We will accept the key to your city. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. I don't have any keys anymore. I used just to have putting so that out there. Keys. You don't have any keys? Oh, is it just like a key code? I used to have just all these keys for work, and now I just have keys to my house. Well, if you did have a key code, would you say it live on the podcast? One, two, three, four. Nice. Hell yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, uh, now that Jordan's been swatted, I think we can uh, move into our next segment. Well, the next segment is actually uh, what we're going to talk about today and that is george clinton oh hell yeah or at least we should uh preface this by saying this episode is about the um <laughs> musician george clinton i love uh, how i just said that and, like i was surprised <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> it's kind of it kind of worried me for a second like, oh I'm nice like, oh what the fuck dude hell yeah i'll listen to this <laughs> um yeah, and if you were just as, as excited as Max was to learn that that's what we'll be talking about, um, you'll be super stoked to hear more later on about just um, I think cultural impacts, the political impacts, um, a lot of things about someone that both of us uh, appreciate very deeply and have for a long time sort of adored, you know? And this is sort of the new format that we're thinking of is going through lists of musicians that we will either 100% love or 100% hate. There will be no medium. There will be no gray area. It will either just, be takedowns or blow-ups. Can this just become a podcast where we just read lists of musicians' names? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, um, hot, just Bon Jovi. Not, um, yeah. <laughs> we should bring Hot or Not back. 
No, I just list them, man. Just Actually, no commentary. Would, I think that would be really cool. I think so too. Uh, but yeah, anything else you want to say about the topic that we're going to discuss after our little break? And we're going to play Max's musical facts. Yeah, I thought I was throwing to Max musical facts, which is why I was, which is why I sounded so surprised. I think. Well, sure. But, I just wanted to tell folks what we were going to talk makes, about later before we. It makes sense. Yeah. Let them know where we're going. But yeah, I mean, I love George Clinton. I love Parliament Funkadelic. Um, I think you, you're the one who sent me the meme that is a, a very popular meme format where it's like the futuristic city made out of silver and lush green lawns and everything. And it, did you send me this one? And it said, this is the, this is the future. This is what the world would be like if, um, people followed P-Funk, like they followed, like people followed the Grateful Dead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, that's literally, that. that's something that I've said multiple times in my yeah. life. Which so, is a meme that I think most people are familiar with that like very futuristic city. You know, yeah, uh, which is funny because you said earlier that you weren't going to talk about memes. Here you okay, are. Well, <laughs> Technically, it's we one that you sent me. Introduce this is Max's meme corner. Uh, we're not at the end right. of it, unfortunately. I I just didn't I just didn't want to. I wanted to make sure that I had the cream of the crop uh, when it came cream, to my meme corner. Memes. <laughs> Creamy memes. Yes, Max's meme cream. Oh my. god god oh you know what that would be that would be like um yeah that would be like a like a lubricant you'd put on your on the outside of your skin when you're about to go and like um go into reddit or something or like just to protect yourself or like on your phone just cover it in vaseline right. before you get exactly. before you start swiping just so you can go faster yeah i i drop my phone in the toilet nine out of ten times <laughs> yeah uh, anyway but yeah i i love george clinton i love p-funk and i do on some level um in my heart and in my soul believe that the world would be better if uh p-funk was recognized like grateful dead was but the fact is um you can't go back you can't change history it had to be the way that it was um and the impact that george clinton as an individual and that p-funk as a sort of bunch of groups a bunch of as dozens of people um working together accomplished is like like that footprint is on almost all of pop music now so um, you know, I, for a long time, I've been that annoying guy. Like I got in an argument with a really good friend of mine, not an argument, but like he got really mad at me because he was playing, um, Redbone by Childish Gambino. Yeah. And this was like a couple years after it came out. And like, I, I just, and I, I just like scoffed at it or something. I was like, come on, you know, this is a Bootsy Collins ripoff, man, which is a, such an annoying thing to say. It's like, like, I know, I know my friend knew that, you know, <laughs> like, Yeah. but I'm, I'm just like complaining for the sake of complaint or like, I guess because it irks me that, um, funk music or like elements of funk music are kind of like coming back into the pop mainstream, um, which I'm happy about. Like I, I, I appreciate that those conventions and those sounds and everything, which I love are like people are enjoying it. I think everyone should enjoy it as much as possible, but I do feel like it's a watered down version of something that I really, really love. Um, so from that yeah. angle or, or it's just reductive, right? It's just, or, or not reductive, but like um, not iterative either. The word it's just like, it's like, um, well, stick around after musical facts. Find <laughs> the word <laughs> yeah. Max is searching for. I probably won't. We'll figure it out. Okay. I think I know what you're saying. Um, but this is our longest running, most popular game. Uh, every fan has sent in a request for us to continue doing this. We've gotten literally tens of DMs. Um, <laughs> this is Max's musical facts where I'm going to read off. Three headlines that I pulled from the news that have something to do with uh, musicians, mus- musical celebrities, uh, the music industry. 
and it's up to Max to determine which of these three is something that I completely fabricated and, and made up. You don't uh, happen to have the running score, do you? I think when we left off last time, it was... Damn, I have no idea, actually. Yeah, <laughs> me neither. Listen, I guess we have to listen to yeah. the last episode to figure out what's what was going on. That's true. Right, I forgot about that one. Okay, yeah. But I'll say yeah. it's a new season, so let's just start from the from the base. Right. You know, like it's nothing, nothing. Zero, zero. Yeah. Start okay. over, and this also this game is, I think, gotten harder for each of us. We were kind of talking about mm-hmm. that in the last episodes that we were doing because the news was so absurd all of the right, time. Right, like, like you could like, have read one. You could have read one that was like, yeah, you know what. Um, it says right here that Trump got COVID and gave it to half of the White House, and I'd be like, "Come on, yeah, that's that's that doesn't that didn't happen." <laughs> yeah, but it in, did. In a bizarre interview, Slipknot frontman Corey Taylor tells the Slime Boys to <laughs> slime back and slime on. <laughs> God, all of it's pretty believable. Uh, so I've worked literally for minutes this morning to find ones that i think uh are gonna do well hell yeah so are you ready here's what we're, first of all we're gonna put the entrance music to max's musical facts here i'm rubbing my hands together like i'm Birdman. okay and um <laughs> so here's the three we have uh songwriter bruce springsteen has declared that if trump wins he will leave the U.S. So if Trump is reelected, Springsteen says, I'm leaving the United States. That is a very extreme uh, Max's music fact to begin with. I'm already, I'm reeling right now. Well, let's pick them apart later and then. Okay. Because I, I would love to unpack a lot of this stuff. I just wanted to flag fun. that I'm reeling. Yeah. Um, Big if true. Beastie Boys, who have never licensed any of their songs to any advertisements um, recently gave Biden the green light to use Sabotage, one of the hit songs in uh, his latest campaign spot. Okay. Um, and Metallica's Lars Ulrich claimed in a new interview um, that he has suffered the same types of adversities that the BLM organizers have, uh, which is why he fully supports their movement. Damn. Based on being German? Uh, Dutch, but Dutch, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but is that what Same he said? Shit. He's like, as a as a Dutchman, I've <laughs> yeah. Uh, my 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 flying ghost ship um was <laughs> had a boot put on it. <laughs> yeah. People don't understand why I like chocolate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people are always making rude comments about my windmills. This is, this is some really harsh Dutch stuff. <laughs> yeah. Dutch jokes. I yeah, there's got to be. This existed. I'm glad that I don't know if there is a, a like a derogatory term for Dutch people. I'm glad I don't know it because I would definitely say it right now. That's douche. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, so let's revisit the first one because I, what I was what I was going to say was um, what we know is that what we know for a fact is that um, Bruce Springsteen, the boss was born in the usa sure the question the question is will he die there he wrote a whole song about it he wrote a whole song about it so i don't know if there is a song that's died in the usa i guess that would be on his final album isn't there a song called to live in well there's a song called to live and die in la that's pretty close okay 
Um, so, I mean, to me, that's like, that's pretty extreme. I feel like that's such a, like a, um, would be such a, like a heel turn almost for his brand. Yeah. Well, um, well but it also in my mind, um, in unpacking that, it is such a, uh, really typical white liberal idea that you can just leave, right. you know what? Well, I don't even want to be here anymore because you all are terrible. Uh, so as though, it, like, because not everyone has the option or the privilege sure. to be able to just pack up and leave and by just saying that like well it's too much work for me to do here so i'll leave you know you're just kind of denying anyone else the uh you know the the space that you would be able to take up or to like do that work or you know be that guy in america like where is he gonna go is he just gonna go well that's the question is like is he gonna go to canada because that's not like i would say like yeah sure he'd move to canada fine but like moving to like i don't know South Africa or like right. I don't know so something he's like that that the, would be like I'd be like really really Bruce Springsteen right. he's in the um, Islands yeah I mean Canada is we know that's te- just part of the United States technically sure. so. and it's not like unfathomable to think that Bruce Springsteen has the kind of money that he could just well I'm just gonna course, go to my, yeah. my beach house in Jamaica and sit this one out but I also want to make the case for Bruce Springsteen a little bit because I mean who has sung so many who else has sung so many songs about this country mm. you know what i mean True. like maybe he's usa'd out you know like like most people who live in this country live and die in this country don't say the the letters usa as many times in their lifetime as bruce springsteen has in like probably 10 years sure so i feel like just on that alone i kind of understand so i don't know i i, I right now i need to be refreshed on the second one uh what was the second one again uh, so the Beastie Boys, right? Okay, have... okay. So, 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 yeah. so, is the message supposed to be that Trump's campaign is sabotaging the Biden campaign, or sabotaging the country? Well, yeah, sabotaging think, the American people. I think that's what's tough there, because without getting into the lyrical content of the song "Sabotage," you know, it is uh, the chorus is "Listen, all y'all, it's a sabotage." And it's like one of the greatest and most simple bass riffs of all time. It's such a good song. True, true. But yeah, what is, what are we saying? Like, it's a sabotage. Is that supposed to be indicating that there is some sort of voter fraud going on, or just like general conspiracy of like the Trump administration? I guess it's not really that much of a conspiracy. There are like literal yeah. and like there's physical evidence that they are trying to like very much cheat in an election, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know because the Trump campaign could also just have used it without getting the licensing oh. and said like, "Oh yeah, sabotage." You know, either side well, it makes could, way more sense for them. Finger pointing thing, right? It makes it makes way more sense for the Trump campaign right. because yeah. they're like, you know, whatever. If we don't want to concede to the election, it's like, yeah, yeah like no matter what, the election was sabotage. Oh no! <laughs> my uh, mic down. My duct tape microphone stand fell over. <laughs> All right. Uh, but I was going to say the Lars one for me, I'm setting that aside. That's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. No doubt in my mind. <laughs> yeah. I know the Dutch uh, can be like that. Uh, sorry to any Dutch listeners. <laughs> I know the Dutch. <laughs> if I know anything about the Dutch. No. Um, right now, uh, I just want to narrate that Jordan is getting more duct tape out. Yeah. To <laughs> put another layer <laughs> on his microphone stand. Um, so... I'm, you know, I gotta be honest. I'm really leaning toward the sabotage one because it's just 
Okay, wait, wait, wait. But what you said was that they gave Biden campaign the rights. The Biden campaign hasn't necessarily used it, right? Um, I actually, so I haven't seen the ad, but the article, they used it in an ad. The article said in his latest campaign spot. Oh my god! Well, <laughs> really? I haven't okay, wait. I can't it. look it up. I was, I was about to look it up. That's, that's cheating. Um, what the fuck? Sorry. Uh, I'm thinking. Ah, oh, it's this is a tough one. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say um, Bruce Springsteen would never leave this country. That's false. Eh. Damn it! <laughs> God damn it! Is it the Lar- is it the Lars one? I'm gonna be so mad if the it's Lars the one. Lars one. Fuck, dude! I literally wrote it 30 seconds Shit. before I started this call. I could I see his. I couldn't I even could... think of one. I honestly thought it was <laughs> one of the worst that I've ever done, and it's mostly just because of how I feel about Lars Ulrich. And I think how a lot of people feel is that he's just a terrible guy. Like oh, that's the thing. And yeah, so it just plays into his thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's fun though. Yeah, I, I just I still even though you told me that's a lie, I still think it's true and plausible. Yeah, well, I guess that's the hard part because it could be true at some point. Yeah, he very well may have told someone that it, privately. I guess I didn't go looking. <laughs> I don't know how I would go looking for that article. <laughs> You'd have to like start like just cruising Facebook for like his friends. Google search problematic statement Lars Ulrich. Yeah, Lars Ulrich canceled. Dude, what the hell? Oh, okay. They take down the ad with the with the rare Beastie Boys song. What what is this? What is this headline, dude? Biden campaign takes down ad with rare Beastie Boys song due to alleged harassment. There's a lot going on. Is it rare? Yeah. Notorious. Oh, okay. Well, so I guess they're notoriously ad phobic. Blah 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 blah. We know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've never eaten that. Da da da. But what, what, what's the harassment? Uh, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, what the hell, man? Oh, so an investor, an angel investor has gotten harassment and threats from Trump supporters. Okay, whatever. Who fucking cares? All right. So All right. that's been Max's <laughs> Musical Facts. Uh, let the uh, record state that we are at a score of one Jordan, zero Max. One Jordan, zero Max. Um, for now. For now. Um, okay. And I think maybe we'll take a short musical break here and on the other side, come back to talk about George Clinton. Okay. Stick around. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is How I Hear It. It's me again. It's Max. Jordan's with me. Um, His microphone... Uh, is okay, even though it's it did collapse. It's extra taped down now. Do you want to see? <laughs> it is, uh, listeners, <clears throat> for those of you who can't see this, uh, the tape Which is, is laid out yeah. on the microphone stand on its base to sort of fasten it to the top of the desk. Yeah. I think this is good. Um, I think this is working. It's not going anywhere. Folks, this microphone is not going anywhere. Hell yeah. Um. Anyway, now that we're back, we're going to talk... Um, we're going to talk GC. We're going to talk George Clinton. We're going to talk um, Dr. Funkenstein. 
um, Star Child, all, all their characters. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't really know what to say to begin the conversation because there's so many places it could start. But but I, I guess um, one of the things I was thinking about a lot, um, we like watched. I watched some concert footage in the past over the past month or whatever. Like it's been kind of an extended research period, but also um, listened to really cool interviews that came out in September, I think, between Questlove and George yeah. Clinton. Um, <clears throat> there's I, I, maybe like a year ago, I watched there was like a um, animated show by Mike Judge called um, what is it? Tales from the Tour Bus or something like that. And so there was a there was a whole season. It was like an animated show, interview show. And there was a season that was about funk musicians, so that was a really cool one that had George Clinton and Bootsy and James Brown. Um, but mostly I've been looking at this book, um, George Clinton's Autobiography, and its title is uh, Legendary. It's Brothers B, comma, yo, like George, comma, ain't that funkin' kind of hard on you, question mark. Um, an incredible title. Also the, the name of a, a song, like a single on an album that he kind of co-released along with this book. Um, so I, I just, I, something I've gotten out of reading this book is just a greater appreciation for not just, um, George Clinton as like a musician or a producer or a music fan or whatever, but as just like a really, really savvy, um, I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of loath to say businessman because I don't have that much, I don't really admire people for just being good at business. Um, but you can, I mean, obviously people who are good at that, at just about anything, like have some kind of you know, ability that most of us don't. And George Clinton is definitely a savant, you know, of sorts when it comes to marketing, when it comes to how to package a band or a handful of bands, how to run them all like a puppet, ma- like a funky puppet master, you know? Right. Um, but meanwhile, like, but, but like while maintaining this like persona, many personas and like this air of like fun, you know, like it, it's not serious, hardworking stuff all the time like it was with James Brown. And like we have a ton of respect for James Brown. And he has a lot of similarities in terms of running his group and everything. But um, there's something casual, something specifically 60s, 1970s in origin about George Clinton and his kind of contribution to pop culture. So um, I don't know. That, that's something that that's a theme that I was kind of thinking about while I was looking at all this. For stuff. sure. Well, I think to get started, though, for people who may not be as knowledgeable as the two of us about it, there is uh, the a person named George Clinton who is vastly responsible for Parliament, Funkadelic, P-Funk, um, this uh, era of music that seemed otherworldly and to combine both rock and roll, R&B, um, doo-wop in a way that was uh, very inspirational and like and science fiction, you know, uh, combining all these worlds together. Um in a way that has influenced a lot of different aspects of the culture that we perceive nowadays, like in the sense of Afrofuturism, um, continues to be sampled on hip hop records. Uh, was that the mic again? <laughs> okay. That's okay. That's, that adds emphasis, okay. you know. That's right. I mean, yeah, I think you're just. I think that was because you slammed the table with your fist for yeah. emphasis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I fucking love George Clinton. But he's uh, this extremely. I mean, like, it's very hard to know where to start. Exactly. There's, he used yeah, to be a I mean, staff songwriter you know, for Motown I mean, um, and has been right. involved as a producer. 
uh, and band leader in, in so many different aspects of his life. But there are literally decades of music that he's put out and different eras of his life that you can define by the music he was putting out, the drugs he was taking and that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's very, it's pretty, <laughs> yeah. um, he's just a prolific guy. Totally. And I, and I would just put a finer point on what you're saying by saying that like, you know, there's a real way in which he was an innovator of funk music in general. Um, even though he was kind of a peer of people who were innovators like, um, you know, James Brown. I mean, he was like slightly of the next, of the next generation after James Brown, but like definitely a peer of Sly and the Fa- Sly, um, Stone from Sly and the Family Stone. But, Along with Sly, what George Clinton did was give language and, like, shape and form to funk. He, like, kind of defined right. it. Right. Right? Um, so I think it's hard to overstate kind of um, the impact of that and how important that is. Like, all the language of, like, whoa, look at that funky-looking guy over there. Like, all of that kind of language, I think, um, it has a longer origin. Like, the he didn't invent the term, right? Or neither did, did James Brown. But... Um, the way we talk about it now like kind of weird kind of kooky um you know what i mean like all that kind of stuff like because for a long time it was more about like earthiness like stinkiness like uh primordial and it, and it still has mm-hmm. meant that throughout you know but there's this other added element of it that i think is a contribution of the 60s and 70s and of george clinton which is like zaniness and larger than life and bright colors and like cartoon turned into real life like who framed roger rabbit or something sure and i mean he's also like part of his legacy as just a a person is coining these phrases that will definitely outlive his lifetime and have informed generations for years and years like free your mind and your ass will follow you know like that's timeless that's uh it came out of 60s counterculture in a way but it also like continues to be true today and means just about the same thing, uh, if not even more so in some ways, because you're then sort of invited into this world of like free your mind and your ass will follow. You know, one nation under a groove is another mm-hmm. huge one, um, but also just the uh, the symbols and the ideology that he inspired and used in his music as metaphor for so many different things that were going on, including like the crack epidemic, um, Vietnam War. Uh, these major cultural moments that we sort of give praise to artists like Bob Dylan uh, or other musicians that were maybe more pop oriented uh, or folksy as like these were the guys singing the protest songs. You know, Clinton was using metaphor to really dissect this stuff in a way that was uh, extremely, you know, he was very able, he was able to scrutinize over these things and put it into this, otherworldly character and persona that he had developed and then make it like a funk song you know and that's Mm -hmm. something that uh not a lot of artists have been able to do since then it's very difficult totally well and and just like um they at at a certain point i mean you know i think we'll get into this in a second but like just before we kind of dive in there's two main bands that make up P-Funk. There's Funkadelic and Parliament, and they overlap, and they're both being run at the same time, but Funkadelic was a more kind of hard rock, psychedelic, experimental kind of thing right. that they were doing. Um, and then Parliament was the more kind of pop-forward pop one. But I think what really comes through is just how um, attentive George Clinton was to, to the moment, because everything was like a reaction to something in the air. Yeah. 
right? I mean, like he's he's definitely a genius, and he was like he's the inventor of a lot of things. But the the fact of like you know human society is that no one really does anything alone, um, and you're just kind of like bouncing off of other people's ideas, and that's definitely true of George Clinton. He's like an opportunist in the best sense. Um, but like phrases like there's a song called handcuffs, a parliament song called handcuffs. And it, the line is something like, do I have to, put, do I have to put my handcuffs on you, mama? Do I have to put you under lock and key? Uh, and I guess it has to do with like an unfaithful partner or something like that. But it's just a phrase that he heard from a friend of his, from like a couple of women who he was friends with, who were using this phrase yeah. of like, do I have to put handcuffs on you? You know, that, that kind of thing. It's like, he, he just, the language is out there. The, the, um, you know, the the poetry, the children's rhymes and all these kinds of things that he was pulling from, the sci-fi um, was all out there. And it was just kind of like, I think to him, he's just like, why hasn't anyone touched any right. of this yet? Um, so, it, you know, whether it's Star Trek or, or whatever, I think he was just like, look, it's just, it's just obvious to me. Um, and one of the things I like about the book a lot is um, to kind of jump into the story of his life a little bit is the way it weaves the kind of. He weaves in, like, kind of larger historical things that are going on. So the the prologue opening chapter is called The Bomb. Um, he was born in uh, on uh, July 22nd, 1941. And he says that when he was four years old, like, the, his first real memory is hearing about the atomic bombs being right. dropped. Um, when he was That's four, um, living in D.C. Yeah, and, like, I mean, like, you know, um, uh, dang, what's the what's the band... There's a funk band from the, I think the 80s that has that really famous song called uh, You Drop the Bomb on Me, you know? It's not even called that, but you know, the one that has like the Yeah, I think I know. I know that song. I don't know what the, that, the band is, though. Yeah, is it Cameo? Anyway. Um, so there's the song, stuff like that, but I remember the first compilation album of, of P-Funk that I ever heard was called Da Bomb. Um, and it was like, you know, that's a reference to the um, one of their songs... Uh, I think it's just called P Funk, Give Up the Funk, you know, where they talk when it's like he's kind of aping like a um, radio DJ voice and he's saying like, this is P Funk, Uncut Funk, the bomb, you know. Um, but I, I think it just kind of places his whole story in history in a moment of like, and and like funk music because funk music is about, um, and and you know all, all these other movements like punk and all these things that kind of emerge in the seventies are like a reaction to, um, how fucked up the world is you know how fucked up the world that the atom bomb sort of gave us right in a way right it's like it's supposed to be the pinnacle of our progress and our achievement yeah. in so many ways um and it's all like garbage like you know the um american cities are like crumbling and you know riddled with crime and very soon like the you know intelligence agencies will like introduce heroin and or like tons of of drugs um to like you know, totally disempower the left and, and, um, uh, black communities and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, and then it's at the same time that like the idea of like post-modernity and all this kind of stuff is emerging. Cause everyone's like, well, ev- nothing's new. Everything's kind of an iteration of an iteration, but a lot of people were like a lot of, especially white academics were really down on that. They're like, well, nothing original will ever exist again, you know? But, but I think George Clinton gives us a window into this whole time period that says, well, you know, why not just play with it? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's one of his phrases is like, you know, nothing is good unless you play yeah, with yeah. it. Um, that's just like, look, like, like the world is meant to be intervened in, but that doesn't have to be like, um, you don't have to sort of like sacrifice the joy of it. Um, so uh, also importantly, he, he was born in North Carolina and, leg- and 
legend has it he was born in an outhouse, not in a uh, in a hospital. Just kind of adding to his fr- funky credentials, right. but yeah, yeah. you know, it's kind of it's kind of an apocryphal story at this point. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I don't know. I was just agreeing with everything you were saying. Oh yeah, he's funky. He was probably born in a toilet. Um. But, <laughs> uh, so yeah, he he lived in um D.C. for a while, and then in 1950, his family moved to New Jersey, and that's where that was like the hotbed of yeah, doo-wop. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, so he was like next door neighbors with, um, the Warwick family, uh, and he was like hanging out around with, um, you know, in the, in the same circles, like as a child, right. But like seeing people like groups like the Chantels, the Shirelles, I mean, like George Clinton is a music encyclopedia. He's such a rabid music fan. I mean, like the book is just like lists of like, it's like, yeah, you know, I used to love the Flamingos, the Spaniels. Like he just like. My favorite was the Spaniels because they had this thing that they would do, you know. Um, he, he's like uh, – I just get the sense that if I were to talk to him, he would still have all that instant recall like it was yesterday about like just the infinite variety of, of bands that were you – know, of like doo-wop groups that were called the something else, you know. Um, but yeah, so he moved to New Jersey and there's a little description of him being impressed by all the advertising and everything that he encountered as he went into New Jersey, which was like a bigger – I guess a bigger city or more metropolitan than he was used to. And so again, like, I think he's like, this is another theme of his life is like being fascinated by the road, wanting to tour, but just like, I don't know, having like a ravenous hunger for all the stuff in, in the pop culture, even like the detritus and everything, like the ads and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, right? definitely. Um, yeah. Like his, his, the first, the band that he formed was called the parliaments as a doo-wop group with his, like, kind of kids his or like guys his age like he was kind of a young man um but it was na- like a lot of bands were either named after a bird a lot of, a lot of doo-wop groups were either named after a bird right like the swallows or something like that um or after a, a brand of cigarettes and so that's what they that's what where their name comes from is um parliament brand of cigarettes but um but yeah i mean another kind of early story from the book is that uh you know, he was working in grocery stores, delivering milk, but he he would also dumpster dive for old records um, behind the record store in town. Um, and like the ones that didn't sell, they would just throw them away. Basically, there's no like return situation. So he would sell records um, to the white kids at school. Um, and I think that's when he got a sense of kind of how crossover worked, right? Or like, you know, how you had to kind of appeal to the people with money to some extent, or, or just like he's just you can get a sense that he, the wheels are turning in his head he's learning what appeals to different audiences exactly um, and and also becoming really i think fascinated with this uh intersection you know we're talking about her as or him as a um, a curator basically you know it's seeing these different things that are happening culturally like science fiction the atomic bomb you know this very pressurized political uh moment that everyone's living in in the world and also seeing like rock and roll doo-wop r&b all of the stuff that's starting to become extremely popular and start to expand out you know there are different aspects of psychedelic music that's that are getting started and i think that's what i am seeing more as i learn more about him and i've done this research is that he's really just a, a curator like almost like a collage artist like is seeing mm-hmm. the the broader brush strokes and sort of bringing these different factors together you know, inventing different characters to become avatars for the stuff that he was 
growing increasingly infatuated with and thought could be combined in a way that would be not only commercially successful and i don't know if that's something he actually was looking for he was looking for like a very new cultural phenomenon like he was it seems like he was always always interested in the cutting edge of things like stuff that uh yeah. could be pushed further yeah i mean i don't know if i don't think that i'm like the authority on this but i do think he wanted to make hit records yeah i kind of think that's always one of his ambitions i think like his experiences with drugs and just what was going on in the, like culturally and politically in the 60s and 70s might have changed that in some ways um but like most musicians i mean he wants you know and most like rabid music fans and people who like you know wrote songs for motown and stuff like that like he wants he wants to be widely known for his work sure. right um so i think what's interesting to me about thinking about um funkadelic is that in some ways that was actually you know it's more experimental it's harder it's like less widely known now less radio friendly that uh, both at the time and now um but i think there's a way in which it was totally geared toward the audience that they had at the time because um so at, so yeah i mean george clinton forms the parliaments and they like are not super successful doing the doo-wop thing they can never keep their like suits pressed and clean and whatever they're, they're just like too weird they're just like a little bit right. too weird kind of like um like right in between the gener- the doo-wop generation or the kind of 50s generation and um, the hippies. So, like, in this weird, uncomfortable place. Um, uh, but then what they they end up moving to Detroit um, to – or George Clinton was going there because he was writing for Motown, um, including some songs that were uh, performed by the Jackson 5 um, and that were later re-recorded for Parliament. But um, in Detroit, there was a lot of – conscientious objectors um, people who were trying to like escape the draft by going to um canada a lot of you know like garage rock bands um psychedelic bands just hippies you know like it was like a um capsule of all that kind of stuff and so when they got there they were really affected by it and i think the funkadelic thing the like you know like you know george clinton heard Jimi hendrix and all the guys in the in the group heard Jimi hendrix and he said oh my God, that's incredible. We'll get three, you know? Like, so like, we'll have like three guys who can play guitar like Jimi Hendrix and just like wail and like, you know, do crazy solos. But, uh, you know, then we'll also have a guy on the keyboards or whatever who will make a sound like, you know, um, King Crimson and like prog rock. Um, and then there's like one legendary story where like they, they all had like really shitty equipment and then they went on stage um, following Vanilla Fudge but their equipment hadn't been um, their equipment hadn't been delivered yet, and Vanilla Fudge was like kind of like classic rock group. Or I mean, they weren't, they weren't called that at the time, but you know, looking back, they're like kind of capital C classic rock. Like they do kind of like slow R and B songs, like just like super slowed down, like organ, um, kind of like almost like moody blues kind of vibes, but heavier. Right. Anyway, so they played on their on their stacks of Marshalls, and that just changed their whole their whole thing that after playing on vanilla fudge's equipment they went out and bought huge marshall stacks themselves and um kind of like their like really heavy sound comes out of that but but i just wanted to say that like they were a huge band in yeah. detroit like everyone loved funkadelic and so like so it, i think it can be overstated the degree to which it was experimental or, or like or like not experimental but like unique i mean well it was both of those things, but you see what I'm saying? It's like it was part of a whole wave of bands that were experimenting Definitely, in this yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. 
So I, I don't know. I, I, again, it's just like, and then w- when they go pop, when um, one of their like managers or, or, or promoters or whoever, one of the many people that who George Clinton surrounds himself with, in, uh, including a bunch of white people who you know who are like savvy, savvy business people who he really trusts, and like you know record promoters and people, someone says, "Hey, we should bring back that Parliament's name um, and start a pop group," you know, um, and so when they did that, you know, um, I, I think that was a clearer example of them trying to write hits. Um, but I think in, in either case, nothing was really compromised. And I think that's, what's really sort of significant about the group. Um, like the character, like the kind of what made them, uh, sort of unique, like has never, even at the time was never really replicated. Like there were like other parallel groups, but, um, George Clinton mentions like a, a handful of songs, like maybe two songs, and he was like, "Oh shit, they're getting kind of close to doing our P funk thing." Yeah. Um, but apart from that, like no one else could really just, you know, do what they did. But, but yeah, I mean, that's just kind of a begin, like like the scope of the beginning of kind of their story. Yeah, and then I I want to talk about like maybe where the both of us started to encounter the character mm. of George Clinton, you know, because I don't think in my mind growing up in the 90s uh in the suburbs of indianapolis there wasn't a a real big frame of reference for me to find parliament funkadelic and and feel that connected to the music maybe until i was in my uh teen years and i think i discovered it and i just thought that it was weird and i wanted to be weird and that was where i started to feel comfort in that uh in the songs but also in like the this like enveloping world like you're kind of he did a lot of like world building you know mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. and you get to interact with uh, the characters as you listen to the albums and as you look at like the art of these records and and learn more and that's what was really cool for me was like seeing all of that on the flip side there is this other aspect of george clinton that gets portrayed in the media as this sort of like tommy chong uh <laughs> like you know what I mean? Like a uh, Johnny Knoxville type yeah. character because of <laughs> totally. his, Hey, welcome to Jackass. Hey, hey, this is George Clinton. Welcome to Jackass. Yeah. You know, like he gets, <laughs> and it, it still happens today in a lot of ways where it's that, that very like cringy vice news article where it's like, we told George, we took George Clinton to a movie to see the new star Wars and he was on drugs or something, uh, which is not the case anymore. Right. Cause he's not that guy, but there was a period right. of his life where he was sort of, uses this novelty in a lot of ways for news stories and for the media uh when he was really dealing with what seems to me like a lot of uh, drug addiction a lot of uh, mental health issues uh and that's stuff that he's talked about um Mm -hmm. but there's this other aspect i think that i'm what i'm trying to say is when i was growing up i did see view him as this uh i don't know if it i want to say cautionary tale i think that's what he was like sort of being positioned as i think that's how like tommy chong gets propped up as this like character of like see if you just smoke weed all day you'll be a dummy like tommy chong and and realistically yeah you'll, you'll end chong up isn't that dumb. you'll end up being a successful <laughs> you'll end up being a successful businessman who sells his own line of yeah bongs. Exactly. sounds but, terrible like, there's this like stoner <laughs> character that uh that totally trope, you know and i think that's something that he had to really battle against in a lot of ways especially in the mainstream yeah. media uh because on the flip side of that he is one of the busiest artists ever maybe you know even if you discount all of his all of the things that he's made that have been sampled on hip-hop records since the 80s he still was like an 
enormous force to collaborate with, to work with, and worked with like, you know, uh, Tupac, Ice Cube, Outkast, Wu Tang, Redman. There's, you know, it just the list. Kendrick goes Lamar on and on, uh, and yeah, it's yeah. insane. And then you also can look at like all of the samples. You know, it's what Dr. Dre used so much of Funkadelic to sample uh, into what became that like brand of hip hop and and it sort of like reinvents what p-funk was doing all over again as we get to the 80s um totally but yeah i, I just guys i wanted to talk about where i encountered this person and like I, I think there was there were a lot of moments for me where i heard lines like one nation under a groove and i was like that's sick you know <laughs> like uh even totally, as a 15 yeah. year old i think that was stuff that like stuck with me or like free your mind inner ass was fo- will follow is stuff that really stuck mm-hmm. with me and like the idea of like having a cool phrase that you can turn you know which this guy is just a master at was so totally cool to me yeah yeah and interestingly like, george clinton is always pra- is constantly praising sly stone as being the yeah. real like phrase maker um like so many things like different strokes for different folks like all that all, like things that just like have totally entered the lexicon yeah. that were just kind of whole cloth invented by yeah either sly stone or george clinton um, but there's a, um, one of the main things about, or not one of the main things, but like one of the through lines thematically of, of P-Funk music is, um, sort of like revamped, like adult, almost like Ren and Stimpy versions of like children's fables and rhymes and stuff. Um, there's just like, and he, 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 one of his favorite songwriters is Smokey Robinson, who he says would do something similar in his writing process. So like just lo- looking for like f- things in the, in folk culture. Right. As like the grist for the mill um, of his music. And like that's kind of where these like larger than life characters um, and all that kind of stuff emerges from. But um, and and, like I think one like the first Funkadelic song that really set them on their path kind of like away from doo-wop, away from rhythm and blues and even away from um, the kind of like James Brown type of funk was a song called um, Music for My Mother that like the whole, the lyrics of it are just like it's like it's like a harmonica and it's kind of like a weird spooky slow funky song a lot of their early stuff with funkadelic was really slow and like heavy but slow um but the lyrics are like yeah like i thought i heard something sound like real old funk to me you know like talking about like like placing funk in his in the ancestry like it's it, its origin is in the south um it's like like my mother and my family and I, so i think that they were really kind of articulating that um, older kind of definition of what funk is. Um, but even as it got polished, even as it, like they added a horn section and Bootsy Collins and those guys from James Brown's band, um, and became better known as parliament, uh, that attitude of, like, yeah, like, like, like Ren and Stimpy cartoons, you know what I mean? Like, like, uh, um, like there's a funkadelic song that I think of called take it to the stage from like the late seventies. And like the, the first verse is something like, um, you know, it, it's about like, you should have seen the bull when it funked the cow. It, they funked so hard that they, that you saw smoke. Um, and then he said, let's get in the bed and funk like folks or something. You know, it's just, it just sounds like a far side cartoon right, or yeah, something yeah. like that. Um, and it's just, it, you just got a sense of like how much fun, um, they're having. And, and 
I don't know. Like there's something in, infective, infectious, I guess, about like um, people who don't take themselves too seriously. Um, but I don't know. But are, but are making something totally unique, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's definitely what it is. You know, there's the there's something very freeing. You know, it's like seeing someone like George Clinton and thinking, damn, that guy is just like on a different wavelength and and like lives in this mm-hmm. this other world uh that is super inspirational to see for anyone who feels like they're not like uh accepted by the other weirdos or, or something like that you know this is a guy that like is very intentionally weird i think that was a big thing for me growing up is seeing that and being like oh shit i could be intentionally weird <laughs> and, totally and it yeah to pay off in a lot of ways you know 100 percent. and i mean i think it's also, it's, I mean, there's so many ways in which they were just, like, um, a really exceptional example of, like, something that a lot of bands were doing at the time. But I think one of the things that's really interesting is how they were threading the needle between, you know, funk, emergent funk, I guess, like, and then um, rhythm and blues and rock and roll, or not rock and roll, like, psychedelic rock music and um, prog rock and all this kind of stuff while being sort of, um, I don't really know what this phrase means, so I'm kind of loath to use it, but like unapologetically black, you know what I mean? Or, or just like, um, that it was all their work is clearly rooted in African-American culture and from that perspective, um, but that it was at the same time broader and wider than that. And yet, you know, so, so the, like a lot of um, black rock acts d- haven't lasted very long or have been sort of stood alone, right? Like it... it there isn't like um, that as rich of a history of that as there should be. And maybe the record should be set straight. Right. But um, let's see, where was I going with that? Oh yeah. But, but you can see in their career, the ways that race clearly played a role um, in how, in how they were marketed and how, um, what their path was. There's one story from the book that I think of when um, they shared a plane with MC five. You're right. Another Um, very heavy Detroit rock band. Right. And notoriously, you know, kind of dicks. Yeah. Like, (laughs) and um, so they were sharing a plane with him and they were all smoking pot on the plane. But as in George Clinton's telling, um, P-Funk was trying to be cool about it and like keeping it on the down low. And and the guys in MC5 were just like causing a ruckus, da 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 da. So, of course, when they like landed, the cops came on and busted um, a couple of the P-Funk guys, but didn't hassle the MC5 guys at all. Right. So that's just, like, one example of how – of, like, that kind of inequality in, in for example, like, criminal justice um, just among these kind of ex- already exceptional people, bands, right? Um, that that's still operative and, and everything. And there's a way that, like, people like MC5 or whatever, they kind of kept it doing that MC5 thing or they kind of fell out of the limelight, right? Um but whereas, like, George Clinton has had, like, as we were just saying, has had such a long, like, l- his music has had such a long lifetime, and in, in, it's still so relevant. I mean, I would argue MC5 is too, you know, or the Stooges or whoever are as well, but it's hard to say that, like, they have as big an impact on mass pop music as George Clinton does Sure, today. and I think a big part of that is that, uh, and he said this in interviews before, that it's not really about him, it's about the music and the band and the He's sort of indicated that the band can tour without him. Um, and I think mm-hmm. even in uh, 2018, he told Rolling Stone that he'd made a hologram 
and that the band could start performing without him with the hologram. No you know? way. And that's this is like the very meta textual awesome. version of what they've done with uh, science fiction and Afrofuturism is saying like uh, this is a band that's always been about like this collective groove, you know, a sort of metaphor for collective liberation or that there's like less focus on the individual than there is on the overall like artistic product and that, that everyone can continue on without just this one person's uh, involvement, which is very cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like really takes it to the next level that that is really like uh, the legacy that we've yet to see is that there will be a P funk without George Clinton. Um, I was lucky enough to see Booty Collins play live. Uh, this is like eight or nine years ago. I want to say uh, where I was working for mm-hmm. a, an alt weekly in Indianapolis and he was playing at the Vogue theater um and it was awesome and i think at that time he was booty was probably in his 60s um maybe late 60s i want to say and he didn't perform the full like hour and a half two hour set but there was a, a band full of younger people who were just as thrilled and passionate and you know ebullient in their performances as you could imagine that people mm-hmm. would be back in the day and when Booty did take the stage, it was awesome. Like, it's such a, an amazing character. Um, but even without that, you know, he would take breaks and, like, go backstage. So I'm su- I assume drink water and sit down because it's a lot of physical activity, you know. It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of energy. But uh, that's something that I realized doing that assignment was that, like, yeah, this music lives on, you know, outside of that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Uh... Yeah. I mean, I guess to talk a little bit about <clears throat> the Afrofuturism bit or like, or just like the kind of content and the mytho- the mythos of P-Funk yeah. music, like, um, I think, I mean, all that really starts with Parliament more than, more than Funkadelic. Um, and I think it's interesting what, what George Clinton says about that shift to Parliament where he's saying like, you know, because they were really fully headlong into counterculture with Funkadelic. Like it was all like funky dollar bill or like america eats its young i mean it's yeah. like the most like 1960s kind of messages you can imagine even though it's like i mean they're taking place in the 70s and one of the speaking of their art like one of the most attractive things about those funkadelic records is the mm-hmm. album art for like cosmic slop and, and albums like this like this it's um this guy named pedro i forget his last name right now pedro bell i believe is the name of the artist a canadian i think who would just a huge fan of p-funk who would just send these crazy drawings on like envelopes and stuff to p-funk and then Event. It's another example of what you're saying about curating that George Clinton was like, dude, you should do our album covers. And so he just did every single one after that. And they're all like totally unique. Like, yeah. I mean, like if you look at it now, you'd be like, oh, my God, that could be like an adult swim cartoon. You know what I mean? Like, it looks like that. Um, but like, but just so far before any of that stuff. Um, but, but yeah, so the mythos of, you know, you can see the beginning of it with Funkadelic, but it really takes off. Um in the seventies when George Clinton is reading books like, um, I think it's called the golden chariot, which is like a kind of like early ancient aliens, um, type of a book where it's because he he was always less interested in star Wars. He says than he was in star Trek because star Wars is like, it's just a samurai movie or it's just like a, you know, I've seen that movie a million times. It just happens to be in space. But what, what he was really interested in is like, well, you know, um, yeah. Like, like what's actually out there? Like what's, what's, different you know what i mean like like what haven't we seen yet 
Um, and so his, and also like, how would it help us explain what we are living through today? So he was just always fascinated with like that ancient alien stuff that's mixing together, like the pyramids, um, you know, yeah, like ancient ruins, the fact that like there's a legacy of a, an ancient group of people who were here long before us who are kind of like guiding everything for us. Um, you know, and, and like like all this, like, like this kind of American conspiracism and all this kind of stuff is kind of being born in the 70s. George Clinton, I feel like he's taking it in like the most productive, least harmful, <laughs> you know what I mean, way possible. Um, and I think, I think he just kind of realized again, it was like, maybe subconsciously that just this would speak to people you know like sci-fi all this kind of stuff is totally emergent at the time but he's also saying okay well what if instead of a spaceship like like what if so a black alien wouldn't just drive a spaceship they would drive a cadillac in space right um so he's like like kind of taking this the symbolism and all that kind of stuff from his life and from his friends and just like the kind of phrases and things that his friends would use and that kind of again not just swapping into space but saying like okay well what if we were in space? Um, and out of that, creating characters like Dr. Funkenstein, Star Child, um, Sir Nose, Devoid of Funk. Like all, and like it would all play out in the, on the stage wearing these costumes. Sometimes George Clinton would change costumes like three or four times in a, in a set, basically. Um, and for the Mothership Connection Tour, when a lot of this mythos was being hashed out, they... Um, that was like the most the most money that had been spent on a black stage act up to that moment in the in the um, kind of mid late seventies, and they had a, a physical mothership come down onto the stage that then George Clinton as Funkadelic or as Doctor Funkenstein would come out of and and do the the song Doctor Funkenstein. Um, so you know it's like there's a way in which it was both this kind of mythos is both more serious and more like you know plenty of people have like done have written papers about like its contribution to Afrofuturism and that's super important and yeah. super real but there's, all, there's also a way in which it was again like how to put on a good show and like that that's always part of what culture is or like like when something catches on it's because it was tapping into something that people already felt or something that art people already had a desire for maybe we just didn't have the language for it yet um and i feel like that's just such a um encapsulation of what george clinton was doing and what parliament funkadelic were doing culturally and, and still to some to some extent right but like naming things like, like like scratching an itch that we never even had language yeah. for which is huge and i mean that's that's the power that afrofuturism has had uh politically in a lot of ways uh to influence the culture into thinking like uh what you know white supremacy and american imperialism has tried to do is erase the history of all of these types of people that you know in the past we've always been mm-hmm. subjugated in some way or in the present there's always been there's going to be this right. continued like presence where uh you're being kept into subjugation by the police force or, or you know and that in the future what does that even look like are, are we even there and this is saying very loudly which has been a, a huge part of i think the current moment is saying like there are black people in the future uh which i think a right. lot of people well, and- like like me especially if you're a white person like me you don't necessarily recognize the power of that statement but it is huge uh especially for people of color that because that is uh, such a remarkable thing to change your way of thinking because totally. it's always I, I mean, in the I, reverse you know it's, you're always everything around you is sort of narrowing your focus into thinking that the future doesn't exist for me necessarily it's only for the, this other these other people totally and, but i think a crucial thing about the way that 
that P-Funk and George Clinton were looking to the future is also the way it informs the past and the present because, you know, we hear the phrase a lot over the past four years of, of Trump's presidency, this is not normal. You know what I mean? Um, even though we know a lot of those people saying that the loudest are like the people most invested in maintaining things right. the way they are. But um, but I think there's a way in which in the 60s and 70s, people were really coming awake to and coming alive to the fact that um, the way the world is at the time with the Vietnam War and everything, everything else going on was not inevitable, right? That it was like, there was there's nothing natural about this. And yet that's what everyone in the, in, in the institutions, dominant institutions in, you know, the ages of the status quo always want to tell us even today is, no, no, this is the normal thing. This is how it's supposed to be. And I think there's a way in which Afrofuturism, especially this kind of ancient aliens version that George Clinton was really into and that he kind of innovated or helped innovate, um, was that it said, we, we didn't always live like this, right? That like, and, and it speaks to not just American imperialism, but just the the history of global empire. And like when, when your people have been, when your ancestors have been dispossessed of their land, kidnapped, you know, enslaved, whatever, um, your history is also stolen from you. And so, you know, a lot of, there's so many scholars who have done lots of work on this that, you know, I'm, I'm far from an expert, but, um, a lot of African-American culture is about, historically has been about reclaiming certain elements of African ancestry, reformulating it, making it, you know, useful and, and sustaining um, to, in their current circumstances, right? But in the in the absence of, or, or not in the absence of, but in under circumstances of having your history sort of stripped from you. And so there's a way in which George Clinton helps us see that element of that tradition to say that, like, we're gonna, we're just gonna scrap all this like founding fathers bullshit or whatever. Like that just doesn't import. That's not important to us, you know. That, that that's not relevant to my life in the way that, you know, um, yeah, whatever. In, in the way that um, thinking about the like ancient Egyptians and the pyramids are right. Like that that sparks them in, in a you know, and it's just interesting to me and more so than it is than, to think about you know Hamilton or whoever. Um, but it also like there, there are a few examples of kind of more terrestrial, concrete political commentary in P Funk. So like there's a Parliament album, Chocolate City, where um, the title track is about DC, which was referred to at the time as Chocolate City because the population was so disproportionately black. Um, and the song is just him listing and saying like, you know, Richard Pryor, the uh, Secretary of Education or Secretary of the Arts, something like that. But he. Like, James Brown, like, is the president. Aretha Franklin, yeah. the first lady. And he just, like, fills out the whole the whole White House with, um, you know, Al Green and, and like, all these um, black musicians. And he's, and he's, and he's saying it's, – I love that song so much. He's, he's saying, um, we're gaining on you. You know, it's, a, like, it's sort of framed partly as, like, a challenge to white America or to the status quo. But also it's kind of a rallying cry. You know, I don't think it ever achieved, like, that kind of status. But, like, it's, you know – the, the the lyrics of the song are sort of like saying like we're gaining on you it's it's a celebration this is you know we didn't get our 40 acres and a mule but i did get you cc and he says you know cc yeah, chocolate yeah, city exactly um you know so there's a way in which and i love that sentiment so much because it's not even you know a 10 years later or whatever in the deep in the 80s a lot of punk bands are saying like fuck you you know to, to the system huge middle finger fuck you fuck you fuck you which i uh you know resonate with and appreciate but it's interesting the kind of political commentary that george clinton was able to make by saying by just kind of 
he's not he's not even mad. That song is saying, why are you so yeah. mad, white America? Like he's just like looking around and saying, you know what? This is an opportunity. Like a lot of black power, you know, organizers at the time were like, well, here are all these black people, huge untapped resource in terms of voting, in terms of political advocacy, whatever, yeah. you know? So there's a way, like, I think that really shows the way George Clinton, like, saw everything more or less as an opportunity. Yeah, it's a, it's a subversive joy, you know, it's subversive celebration. And in that sense, there's this idea that you can, uh, you're manifesting something, you're like building, uh, even though it's just a dream or a, uh, a science fiction thought, you know, you're putting into the world this concept that may not come to pass, but is like still challenging the status quo in some way because you're giving people the ability to believe in a world that is different than the one that they currently inhabit which for most people is not a great world especially right now and i mean and now he's sort of like an elder statesman of hip-hop and and culture in a lot of ways and is you know sought after as a producer and as a collaborator uh seeing him on to pimp a butterfly with Kendrick was, you know, another really like, I feel like a huge moment where people were like, Oh shit, George Clinton is on a Kendrick Lamar album. You know, whatever you may think of uh, Kendrick, there is like this huge power in this guy that's been in music for 60 years. Who's somehow going to continue to be on these mainstream albums that come out. That's incredible. Like that there's, no one else that you could say that about totally yeah and i feel like you know kendrick lamar was also felt I, I think at the time maybe still feels like he's in a position of doing something similar to what george clinton was doing of yeah. curating right of being like okay well and, and it's it's you know it's i'm not the person to speak on it obviously but i i wonder you know how people how Various musicians, whether it's Kendrick Lamar or George Clinton, have dealt with. I, I think George Clinton maybe, I don't know, didn't seem like he took this to heart, in, or maybe didn't feel forced to in the way that Kendrick Lamar may have. But like to sort of be the face of, to be representative of all, an entire group. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I just feel like that wasn't the, that wasn't. I don't know. I, I, I maybe just like markets have changed a lot. It, it's it's hard for me to say, I guess, but. Um, exactly why it is that I feel like, well, I mean, I, I feel like I guess the sixties and seventies were a kind of period of time that we talk a lot about today and that, you know, it's like the best thing that ever happened in our history or like the worst thing that ever happened in our history. Um, but either way, there's like so much attention being paid to that. Um, I, I don't know. It just seems to me like there was a different way to evaluate like what, we expected to get out of an artist like George Clinton then versus what a lot of audiences who listen to Kendrick Lamar expect to get out of him. You know what I mean? Like, like, okay, to pimp a butterfly can't just be a great album. It has to also be this kind of like statement of like the Obama era or something. I don't sure. know. You know what I mean? And, and, and maybe that's, maybe that was also just as much the case in the 60s and seventies. Um, but in George Clinton's telling of his own story, um, it didn't seem like he was positioning his band that way or his band was being positioned that way quite as much. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, this is all in retrospect as we pick apart things academically and as fucking nerds that we are and want to draw these conclusions, you know, not that they don't exist necessarily, but that there may not be this cohesive uh, cognizance at the moment, you know, 
but whether or not Kendrick wanted to re- release an album that was going to be uh, an emblem of the Obama era, it was going to happen either way, you know? Um, and so I think right. that's the difference yeah, is tackling these different topics sort of head on, very uh, purposefully trying to coin phrases that make sense, you know? Uh, and, and a lot of it's like Kendrick does do a lot of the same things that I think take uh, a, a more spiritual level or there's a more spiritual nature to what he's trying to say, you know, um, even mm-hmm. George Clinton's solo albums up until this point, like how, oh, what's the one called? It's how late do you have to be before you are pres- absent? Oh yeah. And it's, and, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. the U's are just spelled with the letter U and it's to yeah. the letter B, B for you are absent. And it's all like, uh, I don't know. It's metatextual in a lot of ways, you know, and, and it's hard to really well, I think, get into like what you think he might have meant by all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it's still just like a great question. <laughs> it's, and it's this very like simplistic way of making something, um, turning a phrase into something that can be sought as, as like sought, seen as sought as sought after as seen to uh-huh. seen to become as seen to be, um, <laughs> it becomes profound you know how late do you have to be before you're right. absent that's good yeah 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 i mean it's it's so good and i, I for that album i think uh i know prince was a collaborator so i wonder if that has something to do with the letter number mm-hmm. situation but he was always kind of on the cutting edge um of that stuff and yeah i mean like like so his most more recent albums were like about like this character of the dog like the drug dog and like the <laughs> <laughs> like, I think it's like an extension of like the atomic dog. Yeah. Like he's he's just, he's just he's got like um, these characters that he returns to and these symbols and everything. Um, but but I think you're right. I mean, there is a real profundity um, in a lot of the music, and that that's one of the, one of the things that's like so sign or like I don't know remarkable about the band is um, what a broad range of sort of like. Because when when I think of funk, I think of like a lot of people just think of like one note, you know, tonally in terms of just like oh it's gonna be fun, it's gonna be party music, that's about it. But there's such a broad if you go from like the, you know through the discography of P funk, there's such a broad range of tones, textures, um, attitudes, sort of just like blends of different genres. Um, because I, I think it really like funk was really like a state of mind you know what i mean it was really like an approach to music especially at that time like now it's become formalized as like like i was complaining earlier about childish game you know like it's been formalized as like such and such a baseline such and such a slapping technique such and such a rhythm you know what i mean but like a lot of the stuff like you know that funk artist at the time we're talking about like everything's on the one was like a huge you know, like a, a contribution from james brown that like became a lyric and different p funk songs like that that's it's not just like you have to emphasize the the first beat of the measure it's also like you know we're all playing different parts that that sync up yeah. in a kind of unified way it, it's 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 like you're saying metatextual it's metaphorical it's um an attitude all this kind of stuff but i think also really importantly um funk has to be sort of embodied like there's like it's it's and maybe some people can listen to funk music and, and not like dance or like rock back and forth a little bit, but I can't. And I think most people, if they're actually listening to the music, they can't really resist. That's the whole point of it. And you're not, you know, 
to just sit in a easy chair and like with big headphones on and just kind of like close your eyes. And I'm sure you can, you know, there's plenty of, for example, funkadelic, weird psychedelic music that you could enjoy that way. But I think the real essence of funk is like something that you have to like feel in your yeah. body. Um, you know, and like get to be there on the dance floor, you know, sweating on other people and all this kind of stuff. Like, I think that's really where, um, the kind of music comes to life. Like there's a, a story about how Motown artists, um, would go and see Funkadelic back in the day in like the late sixties in Detroit, um, late sixties, early seventies. And they would, and they would like wear like furs, but they would also like wear like torn up jeans and they would call, they would call it slumming it. Yeah. Like, you know, um, Diana Ross or whoever would go out and see Funkadelic play, um, you know, but, but it was like, you could just let yourself go a little bit. You could just kind of be loose and just do whatever you wanted to do, not, not worry too much. And I, I think it's so interesting. I mean, I, I guess I don't know enough about this, but um, they were bridging this gap between largely white, but not entirely white. You know, what we, ha- what we have is like an image of like a largely white hippie counterculture and whatever like motown civil rights on the other side in terms of black people and like the reality is obviously so much more complex than that and i think parliament funkadelic um and george clinton as an individual is a way to sort of like orient yourself in that and just to remember um that you can't reduce i mean anybody but like you can't reduce this historical period to just one thing or another to like just the possibility of like you know, left-wing political movements or the shutting down, like the descent into narcissism or whatever. Like it was obviously both. Um, All these, like you can just see the middle of the Venn diagram, I think, so easily when you look at it. Because they inhabited it so forcefully, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's a pretty good place to cap it off. Unless there's something else you want to add, maybe? Totally. I don't know. I mean, I feel like, I feel like there's a lot more that we could say but i feel like even though it wasn't exactly linear we kind of got the scope yeah, I of think it this so. is absolutely everything that you will ever need to know about george clinton uh, yeah, that's right yeah closed. don't read the book do not read the book uh, what was the book oh um you should actually totally read the book it's called uh brothers b yo like george ain't that funk and kind of yeah, yeah. hard on you oh actually if i do want to say one more i, I want to say one more thing which is that thinking about um george clinton is this like producer impresario whiz and like in this political moment of that he was in makes you think about like, okay, well, you know, how do we seduce people to left-wing politics? How do we get people on board? And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from George Clinton in terms of like, you know, and and like, this sounds kind of easy, but like you have to find ways to have fun. You you have to find ways to attract people to what you're doing to your project. More difficult. And like you, that's on you. You have to reach Mm -hmm. them. And like, like, like everything he did was like a huge marketing extravaganza because he was like, I'm no holds barred. Like when we, when we do Bootsy Collins, we're going to, the song is going to be called, or it's going to have the, the hook wind me up and he's going to be presented like a toy on the album and like the album cover and like the stuff that, like the stuff that comes with the album. It's like the merchandising was just off the hook. Um, so I just, I feel like, you know, in it. Um, anti-capitalist way we have to like think in those terms along those lines of like how do we reach people where they are how do we give them the goodies that they want you know what i mean and so you know right now like it's almost november 3rd you know we're going to be voting uh or this this latest election is going to be happening 
And we're in a situation where we're being told it's like this is the most, you know, important, dire election ever in the history of the world, or certainly of the country. And and yet, you know, the person who we're supposed to all be gung ho about voting for um, isn't really giving yeah. us any goodies. He's not offering us anything supposed to be that so would fear stricken um, uh, of the alternative that you have to vote for this guy. You know, there's no real. Right. Uh, you know, his endorsing him in some way doesn't really mean anything other than that you don't like the other guy. It's just that, like, right. yeah, you're not going to get anything out of yeah, it. Yeah. And, like, no, we're still going to frack. We're still going to, uh, you know, I don't know. And obviously, right. both of us have more complex political viewpoints than that. But it is interesting looking at it from that viewpoint that George Clinton was able to turn these phrases and make political statements in a way that wasn't um, partisan in any way, but it was, you know, reaching someone where they're at telling them like yeah we we didn't get 40 acres and a mule but at least i have you chocolate city you know and like um mm-hmm. these sort of celebrations to take things as they come uh that you can't expect the government to do shit for you um all of these things right. are obviously still super applicable to what's happening today and yeah it's hard to yeah. find someone like that who can identify the thing and then put a, a tagline on it in a way that people Totally. gravitate around without like you know without all of the other distortion involved true but i would also say in closing that there's like a limit to that as well because you know as much as i'm inspired by the phrase like free your mind and your ass will follow for example i think that's like um indicative of that of some of the worst elements of the 60s true. and 70s counterculture yeah. um because the reality is that you can free your mind all you want. Your ass won't necessarily follow. <laughs> that's true. Right? I mean, like, like, that's what we saw. Is like a lot of people burned themselves out just like dropping too much acid or whatever it was that they thought was freeing their minds or just like saying whatever they want, you know, whatever, right? Like like we realized that actually that has real limits. A lot of those people just ended up either, you know, dying, I guess, or like getting burnt out or becoming like a stockbroker yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. You know what I mean? So – and like George Clinton didn't, but he's like, uh, you know – super unique individual like who like has like been able to pursue his this career his entire life um but but the reality is that like you know he was not an activist he was never a politician Mo- you know most artists never are they're positioned that way by other people sometimes you know but um and they and they can do really great things but but there's no nothing necessarily that's making them do that and i would just say that like um we have to f- figure out a new way to kind of or new slogans to kind of approach this moment that will help us recognize that um you know no matter how free your mind is you know we have to get all of our asses together <laughs> you know what i mean to actually free them right that like there are actual there 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 are things that we there are material things that people need to to live um that they're not getting right and so how do we get that to them um the culture always has a can play a role in like encouraging us like giving us that feeling of like being connected to other people um all, all the things that funk can do and that music can do is like a is like part of that trajectory but part of the mistake that people like george clinton and them made was and again i wouldn't even say it was a mistake because i don't think he was necessarily trying to change the world in term politically right but um kind of getting too high on their own supply yeah. <laughs> you know literally in terms of like and and we're still yeah. doing that today to be super Absolutely. super clear yeah anyway um yeah i'm really glad that i read this book and and that we talked about this 
Um, I'm still gonna be thinking about George Feels Clinton to make a podcast again. And wait, just real quick, he's, yeah, still, he's still alive. alive. Um, so we'll 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 be checking in on him again. Yeah, yeah. hope, I hope <laughs> soon we'll do this again. Just another encapsulation of George Clinton's life. Yes. All right. Well, thanks, Max. Yes, Thanks. thank you, Jordan. Thank you for listening to How I Hear It, and we'll be back pretty probably soon, probably. Bye. Bye. Bye.